I would like to take a moment to highlight a truly unique way to experience folklore that I was recently introduced to. The Craft is a mystery puzzle game for lovers of folklore and myth. It combines incredible tales, as well as engaging puzzles and ciphers that you must solve to reveal mysterious occurrences, uncover otherworldly activities, and explore deep and fascinating stories from around the world. In these games, you help Lydia Law, director of the Centre for Research and Archives of Anecdotal Folktales, otherwise known as Craft, as a field agent exploring the unknown. There are currently 12 different adventures to choose from, and you can explore them all at www.madmenandheroes.com. Hello and welcome to the Folklore Podcast. I'm Mark Norman, folklore researcher and author. Today, we travel through time and space as we examine the ways that folklore is represented in the long-running classic British science fiction TV show, Doctor Who. My two companions in the TARDIS on this trip are Will Hadcroft and Gareth Preston. Will is the author of the Android children's fiction series, His autobiography, The Feelings Unmutual, is a highly rated account of his growing up with undiagnosed Asperger's syndrome, a condition he finally discovered thanks to an article in Doctor Who magazine. Will has written the forthcoming BBC Doctor Who audio original adventure, The Resurrection Plant. Gareth is a freelance writer, occasional actor, and producer of the Very British Futures podcast. He started writing science fiction fanzines in the 1980s, and since then has written for radio, film and the stage, as well as a large collection of online and print articles and reviews. Gareth and Will joined me for what turned out to be an in-depth look at the nearly 60 years of Doctor Who output. So, let's get straight into the interview. We are today going to talk about the way that folklore and mythology and legend has been represented over the many, many, nearly 60 years of Doctor Who. Um, so the the premise of Doctor Who, obviously, most people will be aware of, but it is a, you know, a, a British-born science fiction series which um, can really take in anything due to its main character being able to travel through both space and time. But obviously, in the early days of the BBC, the remit for programming was, was it not, to educate, to inform and to entertain. And science fiction was very much frowned upon, wasn't it, at that time? Mm-hmm. I'd say definitely Doctor Who was originally envisioned by its creator, Sidney Newman, as being a programme that was going to inspire children to learn more about science and history which is why he originally travelled with a science teacher and a history teacher. Uh, But very quickly, 
uh, some these monsters called the Daleks came along, and very quickly it shifted into much more of a adventure series rather mm. than a. And although that kind of educational side of Doctor Who pretty much stayed with it as a theme during the sixties. Is it not true also, Gareth, that um, whenever they did a science fiction story, the ratings, the viewers, the viewing ratings went up, and then when they did a historical one, they dropped again. <laughs> that, that's that's partly the reason why eventually the, the historical theme stories petered out. I think that certainly became the case by the time Patrick Troughton was the uh, was the Doctor. The historicals were very deliberately phased out as being less interesting to those modern swinging 60s kids uh, <laughs> than, uh, yes, he wanted, yes, more monsters and drama and less meeting famous historical celebrities. But, but let, let's, let's start, though, with, with the, the meeting of famous historical celebrities or, or at least looking at kind of real-world mythology if you mm. like as well well what, what what was the first story that we come across where where mythology was really represented as part of the doctor who universe i, I don't know whether it would be the myth makers the william hartnell story because I, I know obviously greek legend is also history mm-hmm. you know so it's it has its roots in real history isn't it you know the battle of troy is is something that really happened but it's become legend hasn't it it's become mm. mythical many a movie has been made about it mm-hmm. yeah. in fact one of the great things about the myth makers is it very much addresses that gap between sort of historical reality for want of a better word and the legend in that we we find that most of the greek heroes in that story are rather wanting in one way or another, they're all Odysseus is basically a crook who's out for himself, and Achilles is a vain, rather pompous kind of posh guy, and uh, <laughs> and similarly, uh, so it actually plays with that. And originally, the Doctor, because the Doctor's been challenged to break into the impregnable city of Troy, so naturally his companion Stephen says, well, what about the horse, obviously? And the Doctor goes, oh, no, that's just some ridiculous invention of Homer's. Yeah. And, uh, but, uh, but ultimately does end up having to suggest the, the horse by the end. So, so, yes, in the early days, it was more foreign cultures and their folklore that we were going into. In Marco Polo, there's one episode that gives about 10 minutes over to the recitation of a Chinese legend, mm-hmm. for example. And the Aztecs, they are, you've gone into the Aztec culture and yeah. their sort of, uh, I don't want to get too good in mixing folklore and religion and relationship, but it's that crossover with yeah. the Aztecs. And then later on in the 60s, increasingly, uh, the more fictional version of history begins to creep in. It becomes more about pirates appear twice in the later yeah. years, for example. And uh, it's suddenly, it's more, it's that kind of over-the-top Victorian uh, Victorian kind of characters. Mm-hmm. And and the series does go back, doesn't it, and, and revisits ideas of, of Greek myth, 
in later iterations as well maybe yeah mm -hmm. there, there are a couple of times in the in the tom baker era aren't there that i'm thinking of like underworld mm. uh, which isn't a very highly regarded story but it, it does mess around with greek mythology um the quest for eternal life and that kind of thing mm. um I'm trying to think of uh, yes. That's a striking thing about the Graham, uh, the producer Graham Williams, who took over from Philip Hinchcliffe. Mm. Uh, Philip Hinchcliffe had overseen the early days of Tom Baker, and it's very clear that his influence is Hammer and movies, and yeah. perhaps. And in fact, it's funny there were, when I was looking, we were I was putting together a list of stories to talk about. There's quite a few stories that, on the face of them, look quite in this area folkloric and then you realize that really it's all just pure cinema there's no deeper research than mm. than that going on mm. so uh and then graham williams comes along and graham williams is much more interested in literature he's uh, mm. he's inspired much more by legends and fairy stories and these kind of uh and indeed in in folklore so it's it becomes a theme of quite a lot of his stories so is it is it the case that it depends very much on the writer or the producer at the time as to how well or otherwise the subject is dealt with mm. to some extent that is down to the writer and how much research they want to want to do basically uh some writers i mean it's a sign of good writing you should do research you should where well, and in often cases they are inspired by a particular story like uh the the flan the mystery of flan the ballad of flan and isle which turns into the lighthouse set horror of fang rock for example uh but uh yes there are then there are other writers who very much just use other people's fictions and mm. build a Doctor Who story on that. Doctor Who's a, a, a real magpie for nicking other people's uh, ideas. Mm. That Terence, in fact, the script editor, uh, Terence Dix, once said that. He said that the thing you need for a Doctor Who story is a good idea. It doesn't necessarily have to be your idea. <laughs> <laughs> also, some writers have their own uh, preoccupations. They Barry Letts, notoriously, he was the producer of John Pertwee's time. He, he was notoriously uh, investigating Zen Buddhism, so Buddhist mythology, not in a very heavy way, but it, it, it does creep in certain themes and ideas mm. that, that, that Barry was uh, keen on or, or that was he was considering. He would weave them in, sometimes into stories, well, definitely into the stories he wrote himself, uh, under various pseudonyms, but also into other people's stories, if, if he could see that they lended themselves to that kind of thing. So whilst it wasn't preaching Buddhism or exploring uh, a doctrine as such, that the ideas were there in a, in a number of stories in his time. Yeah, that's interesting because it, religion is not something that's, that's dealt with particularly because it's... It, in a program like this it's it's a bit of a tricky subject to be able to to weave into a story so so it's interesting that that one did kind of make the cut if you like yeah 
It is interesting in the Pertwee era, it's as very much a series that's dominated by science and in, mm. the doctors forever going to industrial complexes or laboratories in that uh, during his time. And then suddenly in the middle of that, you get this explosion of sort of folk horror in mm. the middle of it all with the demons. Yes, mm. and we should concentrate on the demons. As you've brought it up, we'll do it now. Mm-hmm. Um, because that is probably in most people's eyes one of the classic stories as far as ideas of landscape folk horror as you say Mm -hmm. paganism magic Mm -hmm. those sorts of ideas come about can you just summarize for people who are not so familiar with it what the plot of the demons actually is okay it is set there's an archaeological dig and they're about to go into what they believe is the barrow of a, a Dark Age king of some kind of Bronze Age, I believe, king. Uh, but is, when they break into the barrow, huge supernatural devastation seems to strike the village. And meanwhile, the Doctor's arch enemy, the Master, is pretending to be the local vicar in a mm. rather lovely sort of like just juxtaposition and he's on and he knowing what's really in the barrow has arrived to take advantage of this alien being that is actually it turns out there's an alien being actually buried under this barrow and a lot of what we think of as magic is actually and indeed our traditional view of the devil turns out to be have a direct alien influence by this race of aliens who we call the demons that's that that sort of thread it comes up in a few other stories isn't it the idea of of uh, an alien presence uh being a direct link to our understanding of what the devil is like the malice in the awakening peter davison story where mm. somebody actually sees a, a picture not a picture but um sort of something inscribed on a wall and she says that's a representation of the devil and she actually says it um and then the doctor has to link it up with the malice that what people in 1600 and whatever it was thought thought was the devil was actually this alien force um, deliberately stirring up uh, negative uh, emotions and vibes so that it could feed off the, the psychic energy it needed them to enact a war so that it could feed off the hatred and all the negative emotions. So, so those kind of ideas crop up every now and then. But what, mm. what I would also say, because we're saying, Gareth, about science uh, being brought in quite a bit more heavily in the John Pertwee era than, than previous eras. The Doctor really was a scientist in the John Pertwee era. Mm. Um, that every time something that is seemingly magical or spiritual or religious, they, they then go and do a Scooby-Doo on it and say, well, actually, no, and un- unmask the real enemy. Mm. Uh, mm. And it turns out not to be magical, and it's not uh, anything to do with spiritual encounters. You know, it, it is all material, physical, and mechanical it's all boiled down into a sort of materialist and secular viewpoint at the end. Mm. Is there a particular reason for that, do you think, in that era, that they, they choose to discount 
magic and just go, it's science. I think it's just, just a general mood of the programme. It's a general mood in most science fiction. It's not just unique to Doctor Who. I mean, uh, Star Trek is full of gods being exposed as aliens yeah. or computers. Uh, I mean, the demon sets its stall out almost from the beginning. I mean, we start off with that marvellous nighttime scene of uh, this lonely dog walker walking through this stormy night and being killed by something Mm. mysterious. And then we go from that to the Doctor disproving uh, magic. So initially you get that sort of setting out, setting out of things that look like magic, in fact, are science. And we later discover that uh, that that the a lot of the black magic is actually this demon's psionic. They they are the stick a word in it, they say it's psionics yeah. instead, which obviously makes it scientific, you see. How was the story received at the time? Because uh, the BBC is putting out what is essentially a children's programme whether you agree with that approach to Doctor Who as a children's programme or just as light entertainment. Different people have different opinions on that one. But it is an early evening viewing slot, let's put it that way. Yeah. And it's dealing it's with like things... It's half past five on a Saturday, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, exactly. So all the family are there. Yeah, all mm. the family are there watching a programme which is dealing with themes of paganism, black magic, the devil... Yeah. Cult. Mm. Yeah. yeah, how was that received at the time? I think there were some eyebrows raised. I don't think mm. not, there wasn't as much outrage as perhaps there was over other bits of violence that perhaps are more imitated. I mean, children are more likely to imitate some of, some of the violence rather than holding black magic uh, sort of ceremonies at school. Mm-hmm. But I mean, but certainly those, the scenes with the master pretending he's, he's built himself a little coven of uh, devil worshippers, we discover. And those scenes, certainly they would look, don't look out of place in a hammer at the time. Mm-hmm. You know? mm-hmm. So... So I think I think the most outrage was over the apparent destruction of the church, yeah. which convinced some people that the, the BBC had actually blown up this church in Oldbourne for the sake of a, a TV programme, which uh, caused some harumphing letters to be written. <laughs> yeah. Testimony to the, the special effects of the time, because yes. it was mm. a model that they blew up, but people were, were convinced it was a real building. It's interesting by uh, continuing this theme of of science of magic versus uh, rationality and science in the demons. Uh, early on, as I said, the the master is pretending to be uh, a vicar, and early on, Miss Hawthorne confronts him, and he's saying about, "Well, you know, the soul. It's a very. Do we really know what it is? Really, it's more of a." And she, how dare, a rationalist, existentialist priest. I've never heard of anything so ridiculous. And, and paganism, I guess, is, is, is covered elsewhere as well, isn't it? In other stories, this wasn't just a one-off. Mm, I mean, sometimes quite explicit, although it's not on the face of it, seemingly uh, a folklorist. The, uh, the face of evil is actually yeah, yeah. quite a... because. 
because they've set it on an alien planet about ostensibly alien people in a way they feel the the writer chris boucher thinks he can go further and it's it's actually quite a a harsh look at religion in that mm. this one says this whole religion that these people believe in is entirely a mistake and a misunderstanding of what's actually happened yeah. uh, to this uh these explorers who split so it's up like in... Chinese whispers, isn't it? It's been, they, it's been passed down through the generations mm. and, and they've, they don't realize they're just descendants of people who crashed there. Absolutely. And, and the two societies split off a technical society and the, uh, the survey team who then become the sever team. Um, mm. And all this religion is based around it. And they're, they're just, all but it's possible. entirely man-made, isn't it? And the whole thing is man-made and all their beliefs and uh, their this made-up folklore on this planet about the evil one and all these rituals they have. There's a, a little bit where um, the, the Doctor meets someone who does this sort of genuflection <laughs> when he sees him and the Doctor says, oh, that's probably a sign to ward off evil, isn't it? Which is funny that it's also the checking routine for a, a Mark 7 spacesuit. Yeah, pressing all the <laughs> buttons, yeah, on the side, mm -hmm. yeah. And, and doesn't one of them wear like a cricket glove or something on his head as a yeah. piece of religious attire? Um, that, that's... And that's supposed to be symbolising something, but it's just a glove from a spacesuit. <laughs> <laughs> that's it. So, and... But, but Doctor Who's always held back from going quite that far with a, a real, actual religion. I think it would, yeah. and I don't think they ever would. I think uh, even the, even though occasionally someone suggested, you know, why don't we do a, a Christmas special where the Christmas star turns out to be an alien spaceship, sort of like in Palestine yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, 2,000 years ago. But I think that it would be a mistake yeah. yeah i mean there was a kind of nod to that wasn't there in the um in the rebooted version with you know the christmas specials have, have had little nods to that kind of idea the, the star-shaped yeah. spaceship but but not in that context yeah mm -hmm. yeah and um, the classic series sorry man no, 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 classic series i'm uh, just thinking of the stones of blood when you were talking about paganism in Doctor yeah. Who. No, I was just going to ask about that one, actually. Where they have um, people being sacrificed on stones on the moors and talking about the Kaliak. Uh, and, of course, it's really, again, manipulation by aliens. And you've, you've got these two stones from a stone circle that come alive and move across the moors and kill people. And I, I remember as a seven-year-old, I was scared to death of those things. <laughs> I mean, now mm. when you watch it, they look like they're rolling along on wheels with a with a, a light bulb inside flashing on and off. But when I was seven, they were terrifying. But but that mm. that whole thing of crows and ravens and uh, messages being passed secretly mm. and that, that's all that kind of pagan stuff, isn't it? Yeah. Definitely. But there's this idea, isn't there, of um, playing with our inherent fears is is behind a lot of these sorts of stories even i suppose looking at modern stories like blink and yeah. the weeping angels where you know you, you might have i suppose if you wanted to look at it in terms of folklore the closest you could get would be a, a you know the fact that it's kind of resembles uh gargoyles and that that you know yeah. that kind of aspect Church, churchyard yeah yeah statues, yeah 
Yeah, mm. but but it plays on our fears of the ordinary, doesn't it? And mm. you know, it's what what's a statue is not a statue when you're not looking at it. The same, although it has mm. no no connection with folklore at all, but it's the same sort of thing with the the idea of the Vashti Narada and the fact that you know it, uh, a shadow can be something that's damaging as well. Mm. And the autons again. This is not folklore, but the autons. The idea that when you walk past shop dummies in the window, did you see one of their heads turn yeah. as you walk by at the corner of your eye? You know that kind of mm. idea of playing on uh, the world is other than it really seems to be. Yes, yes, and, and that's where it does tie in, isn't it? Is it? It's the idea of the other being amongst us, I suppose, which mm. is which is um, quite common mm. in a lot of in a lot of folk tales. I mean, it's, it's interesting that you've both given examples. I mean, although they're, they're made up, they have that kind of folklore structure. They are a monster with very specific rules to be followed. Mm. Uh, in, in, in either you don't look at the, or rather you keep looking, sorry, the other way around, you keep looking at the angels, mm. like, and then you will be safe until you look away. And, mm. and similarly, the Russian Narada come with with rules. Uh, an interesting interpretation of that comes in Tooth and Claw, which uh, on yeah. one level it does the thing where a legend, in this case a werewolf, turns out to have an alien origin. But there's, I thought it was quite interesting, this idea that the werewolf in that story, it, which has been raised by this cult, basically as a kind of weapon, as uh, part of their plans, in that they've trained this werewolf to believe in the werewolf myth. So mm -hmm. it's, it doesn't, so it sort of stays away from Hawth. There's a scene where they're in a library and the wood panelling is made out of Hawthorn. And the, the werewolf, even though it could easily smash in, doesn't because it believes that, you know, Hawthorn is deadly. And mm -hmm. so which I thought that was an interesting use of, of of belief yes yeah that leads leads us into another area actually which we could explore which is the idea of these kind of real world cryptids or creatures or monsters um mm -hmm. i mean the Loch Ness monster for example how many times has that been explored in the series in one way or another i know of two off the top of my head am i gareth are there any more those are the two main ones. You know, I, as a kid, I absolutely loved the Loch Ness Monster legend. I, I certainly believed it when I was young. I, I sort of believed in all the... I had the books uh, the, uh, and you know, I knew all those famous photos off, mm. by, off by heart. And uh, so, it, so I was thrilled when the Loch Ness Monster turned up in, in Doctor Who. Uh, Again, yes, they, they deal in, although it's interesting, it's, although it's a lot less monster, they don't really address the fact that it's Nessie until about halfway through the story. Yeah. First, it's just a mysterious monster. There's an interesting little bit of, of this is very writer, the writer is Robert Banks Stewart, very good writer, and there's an interesting playing with that kind of horror motif about the sinister past and the sinister folklore, because the innkeeper tell Sarah Jane this story because she's teasing him a bit 
over his he is a bit superstitious and believes in various things and she's teasing him a bit and he mm. tells her this story there was a man who stayed at this very inn he went out on the moor and was never seen again and she sort of says oh when did that happen well it was 1946 yeah. <laughs> and then he says oh and then there were the jameson boys but that was a wee while ago which I always <laughs> thought was quite a funny line that uh, that it turns out that's like nineteenth uh, century and, mm, yeah. and it's a, this little it's a little almost urban myth type things that they went on the moor and encountered something and one died and the other his hair turned quite white. Yeah. The result. <laughs> it's a great scene that it's the way that actor delivers it and the incidental music in the background. It's very spooky the way it's mm. presented. I think with with all of these folklorish things that's what they're aiming for in doctor who aren't they it's doesn't matter if it's accurate doesn't matter if it's based on something that really happened mm. or if it's completely made up or stolen from a movie mm. it if it has a spooky feel to it then they're on it mm. yeah. and in a nice way in that story uh, the they end up in a way substantiating the legend of the Loch Ness Monster yeah. because uh, by the end of it uh, the creature which was only being used it wasn't inherently evil it was just being yeah. what it was it was monster. being directive wasn't it yeah yes by other the, an alien race called the Zygons and at the end they let it sort of swim back and live out its days in the Loch Ness Monster uh, and so the, the, by the end of it there really is a Loch Ness Monster in, yeah, which is great for the tourist industry. And that seems <laughs> that seems come up elsewhere, hasn't it? The idea of the monster being the victim mm. and, and being misused, misunderstood. Yeah, yeah. I'm thinking yeah. of the uh, what's the the Vincent and the Doctor, that creature that's supposedly a terrifying monster. It turns out that it's blind mm. And, mm. and that it's not it's not actually going around attacking people because it's evil. It's frightened. Yes. Mm. Uh, and then there's a yeah. parallel made with Vincent's uh, bipolar disorder and yeah. the way he seems to be sometimes and not others. Mm. Um, yeah, very mm. intelligent storyline there. So, yeah, monsters as metaphors. And similarly with the, the Yeti, the, <clears throat> which uh, seems to be at one point revealed that it's uh, actually their robots in disguise as Yetis. And mm. then at the end, we discover there are real yetis and they're, yeah. they're much from what we see though they seem much more gentle and nicer and we're mm. probably being yeah. ter terrorized by the although frustratingly we do not have a photo of what the real yeti looked like um mm. and no clear description of it or anything so that's a a little mystery in itself yeah. Yeah, and you were saying about two. There are two Loch Ness monsters. Mm. I don't. I don't know if Will, if you want to talk about <laughs> the other Loch Ness monster. The other one, yes, Mr. <laughs> Borad himself, uh, in the Time Lash. Yeah. So, so in the Time Lash story, there's um, a time tunnel on a planet far away, where, and they use it to uh, dispatch criminals. So they basically throw them into it, and they've got no idea where the other end of it is, uh, where they come out. And it turns out they come out uh, at Loch Ness. Uh, and when the, the villainous Borad, who's uh, a mutant, so he's got this sort of dinosaur face on one side and a human face on the other, and a flipper for a hand and an ordinary hand, um, he is uh, thrown down the time lash at the end 
Uh, and Perry says, but won't he be seen? And the doctor just smiles wryly and says, from time to time. <laughs> referencing the uh, Loch Ness Monster. Yeah. I remember, it's funny, with the um, Terror of the Zygons, we're all, we all go, oh, it's the Loch Ness one Monster. But uh, when Time Lash was screened, my, my entire family all went, oh, <laughs> when that revelation was made, <laughs> that the Borad was the Loch Ness Monster, it was less convincing, probably because he's so much smaller. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Just the size of an ordinary man, really, isn't it? Yes. So werewolves, there we go. There's one, the Loch Ness Monster. There's another one. Um, and vampires, that's another yeah. one that comes up a couple of times, isn't it? Yes. What's the... go sorry, I was just going to... Sorry, Gareth, I'll hold your thoughts because I'm just backtracking a minute. Mm-hmm. Um, I was just thinking about Terror of the Zygons, Mark, about shape-changing creatures. Is, is that anything to do with folklore? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, the concept of shapeshifters is, is, yeah, is found in all sorts of different cultures. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So, so it, mm. that had a loose, a loose root in folklore, just that very yeah. concept. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Mm. Good call. Yeah. That's it. And um, yeah, with vampires, uh, with Doctor Who, perhaps strangely not done vampires more in a way because they're such a, an obvious villain. Mm. Uh, the first, uh, in fact, the first vampire we saw was very quickly revealed to be actually just a, a part of a, a sophisticated ghost train, basically, uh, Count Dracula uh, yeah. back in the 60s. And we don't really get a proper vampire. Uh, until State of Decay, with the, yeah. and then it, they really double down and they bring in all the vampire lore. It's got bats, and yeah. I don't think they actually have garlic. I'm trying to think if they actually have garlic. I don't think they actually have garlic, but uh, yeah. it's very much Hammer film inspired. Mm. Uh, the State of Decay, and, yeah, very uh, theatrical looking, isn't it? Yeah, very theatrical, yeah, and the vampires, even if they're revealed to have an alien origin from an ancient enemy of the uh, the Time Lords, apparently, is where they originated from. Mm. But they're very in the sort of traditional, pale-skinned, aristocratic... Yeah, uh, yeah. bloodshot eyes, yeah, the teeth, the whole bit. Mm. Yeah, it's <laughs> very much the stereotypical picture mm-hmm. isn't it but then in in the reboot we get um vampires of venice which which is a slightly more horrific vampire i guess in some respects mm, they are and and uh, although again they toy with this because they start off with something that seems very much a traditional kind of vampire estricity mm. we even because changing wars we, we now have a few bosomy maidens as well in uh in venice but then it turns out they are in fact a hideous fish-like creature and not mm. vampires at all mm. by the end i was just thinking i hadn't thought of it when i listed it but the uh, the curse of fenric the hemovores mm. are vampires aren't they and I, I think they were originally called vampires and john nathan turner said oh that'll upset certain people in the audience so mm. they were renamed hemovores after hemoglobin yeah um, although that's that's only part of the story there there are other mythical things uh, yeah yeah go go into a bit more detail about the story of the curse of fenric because it also is another one of those stories that kind of deals with 
our own historical cultures, notably, mm. I suppose, you know, Viking, Scandinavian cultures, mm. and then goes off in a different direction, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. So it's, uh, it's Second World War, isn't it, Gareth? Uh, that mm-hmm. period. Uh, North Yorkshire, is it? Um, and an army sure. barracks is involved. But it is all about a Viking curse that mm. uh, Dr. Judson is transcribing, translating into English. And they have a World War II cipher machine that they're using to crack German codes with. And they decide, hey, wouldn't it be a great idea if we fed this Viking inscription into the cipher machine and see what happens? And of course, what happens is it unleashes the curse of Fenric, this, e- this evil force. Um, quite how mm. the mechanics of that work, it's never explained, but in magical things, it never is, is it? You know, mm. exactly what's going on. Mm. Is, it can't be explained. That's why it's magical. Yeah, so, see, there, uh, there is a certain like amount of uh, dream logic in in that story. But yes, it's certainly early on, it's very heavily into sort of folklore tropes. I mean, yeah. that one that Will's just mentioned, the the the, the inscription, the mysterious writing on the wall mm. that uh that initially before they discover it's actually a kind of computer program. Initially mm. it seems to be a curse. In fact it's an old story about how these Vikings mm. stole a cursed treasure and they mm. were killed off one by one by some nameless evil so it starts and so we are firmly into a much more super and the way um the way the doctor uh, and commander millington uh, read out portions of that uh, prophecy to do with the, the ash tree and all of that and, uh, mm, and uh, yeah yeah and I, I hope i hope my yeah, i hope my wife will forgive my sin and all this kind of stuff you know very religiously very um yeah mythological and spiritual until mm. the more mechanical side of it comes in later on mm. and then in fact it uh, rather suggests at one point that the hemovores or rather this one particular creature called the ancient hemovore mm. the, the ancient hemovore mm. who was uh, like the originator he's the one who's created all the other hemovores and there's a suggestion that he actually created the vampire myth on mm. earth that uh, whilst traveling over the centuries and whilst he was passing through transylvania he creates this myth that bram stoker then uh, learns about later on mm. and it's very much a sort of sins of the fathers the and that it's all about the descendants of the Vikings have somehow carried this evil or this alien design with them, mm. which is something of a recurring theme. This uh, actually, this idea of an evil being passed down generations, mm. uh, aside from, of as well as the strictly supernatural kind of the cursed family kind of genre. Uh, in, in science fiction terms. And again, they kind of took this idea way back from Quatermass in the Pit, this I, with this idea of, which had this idea that Martians had imprinted something into human DNA, you know, mm. to carry on, that, that, that we were their legacy. But that's mm. probably a different podcast altogether <laughs> on that one. Um, so, Christopher Frederick is an example of that. Another good one is... 
image of Fendal, which initially mm. seems like it's going to be very suitable to be talking about until, and it does have some elements in it. It's got a, a sort of wise woman, a sort of earth mother character yeah, yeah. called uh, Mrs. Tyler or Mother yeah. Tyler, as some people refer to her. Yeah. And she uh, does all these sort of folklorish uh, remedies that she she sort of sells to local the locals that uh, turn out to be a lot of them. Her her lucky charms actually turn out to be bags of rock salt. Yeah, that old, that old legend about uh, you know the devil not liking salt and salt mm. being a protection, and in because it's Doctor Who, this turns out to have some basis in alien science and the. Doctors have to use the rock salt to defend themselves against the the hideous Fendaline, the slug-like Fendaline. And uh, Curse of Fenric uh, again, uses it a bit more subtly in this sense that this evil has somehow been manipulating generations of people to bring all the right elements together mm. at this point in this village so that this uh, it can be release the doctor explains it in a very supernatural he doesn't unusually for once he he doesn't really give a very scientific explanation for what fenric no. is he sort of he's it's mystical fact, isn't it it is actually quite yeah. a mystical origin he talks about that um when the universe was created it's uh there's a there was an echo that good and evil yes. split apart and Fenric is uh, an echo, an echo of the evil from the start. Somehow the, the evil escapes. Yeah, I can see him saying it. Yeah. Yes. Uh, and then so... she says, and that's Fenric. And he says, well, no, that's just what Commander Millington calls it. But uh, the uh, evil itself has been around for as long as the universe. Which is uh, yeah. Yeah, it's this... ambiguous, isn't it? What it actually is. Mm-hmm. And this idea of ancient evil, I suppose, comes up elsewhere as well, doesn't it? Um, the, the Awakening is another story, well, I think, that, that has that behind it, isn't it? Yeah. Mm. Yeah. We touched yes. on that a little bit before, didn't we? Sorry, Gareth. No, I was about to say, yeah, Will raised it, gave a good uh, dis- description of it earlier on. Mm. Uh, again, we're very much in that kind of sort of folk horror story telling yeah. with the uh, discovering of mysterious carvings and uh yeah it, it's called the, the malice church. Now, i don't know if you, you can answer this mark because at one point the doctor says oh the malice that's another word for the devil now i don't know if that's true or something eric pringle made up uh I, do you know i'm not sure i'd have to yeah. i'd have to check on it it's, is it's it not, even, not is it even a real word is malus spelled M-A-L-U-S a real word? Because I was a as a teenager, I thought they were saying malice. It was only oh. when I saw it written down yeah. that I saw it was malus. I'm looking it up because I don't have that off the top of my head. There is uh, here we go. There is a breed of apple tree, oh. malus domestica, which is the red devil. Ah, oh, interesting. So it, it probably comes from a completely disconnected <laughs> <laughs> oh, but, but still yes i guess relates to the devil no? so we, we can yeah. give them that one yeah <laughs> why not oh, I've, I've learned something yeah, yeah absolutely yeah. The, the, the idea of something evil trying to encourage evil in others so that it can feed off uh, the destruction and the mm. killing and the, and the fear and the anger 
that that's a very potent idea, isn't it? And it works so well in that story. Mm, that, that this it, it doesn't even appear to do it. It's just there, this horrible face in, in, a, in a church wall. And yet it's um, psyching them up, literally psyching them up um, mm, yeah, to, to engage in war, even down to the point where they're going to sacrifice uh, Tegan as uh, the May Queen or whatever it is that she was going to mm. be. But they were actually going to go through with it and kill her. Yeah, um, it. And so it's all because of this force egging them on to do it. Yeah, so that's drawing from obviously witch burnings mm. and and the like that yeah. that 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 kind of legend and this idea of a, a whole community that that paranoia about rural mm. communities mm. that they're all in it or conspiring against you, which is a mm. recurring theme in quite a lot of uh, horror films. Yes, and... absolutely. While you're on the subject of witches, we probably ought to talk about the Witch Finders, which is mm. one of the most recent um episodes i guess being part of jodie whittaker's tenure and that's Ooh. an interesting one because that is based very much more in kind of decent historical background and and mm. as is the case with a few of the more recent stories perhaps it's it's focusing more on the victim side and the actual mm. real-world horror behind these things, in the same way, perhaps, mm. as, as um, Rosa Parks's story was, was covered, looking at that kind of victimisation mm. aspect as well. It's an interesting one, The Witch Finders, isn't it? It is. I think it's a very interesting uh, story. As you say, there's several levels of, of victimhood there's obviously the women the innocent women being persecuted as witches and that whole paranoia and mob mentality and then mm. we discover that the person who's behind this uh, campaign in fact both people both the local lady of the manor who's become infected by another ancient alien the uh, evil and uh, and the more historically true case of uh, King James I, mm. who f was well known as a, uh, he was, witches were something of an obsession with. Yeah, with, absolutely. And it's so, I think that that aspect is well covered in mm. that story by Joy Wilkinson. And we look into him, so he's both a perpetrator, but we sort of see because of his upbringing, uh, in a way, he's, he's quite damaged in mm. some ways, and that's... But they do choose to use comedy, or at least darker humour, perhaps, mm. um, for the character of James I, don't they? Rather, rather than focusing absolutely on the horror side, which is an interesting choice. Yes, I mean, how much of that was how Alan Cumming approached the part and says, mm. yeah, I'm going to go reasonably big mm. on this and make although you get that nice contrast because for most of the time he's quite this energetic sort of even though he's doing terrible things he's kind of perversely mm. likable because he's so kind of upfront and energetic about his witch hunting mm. and and then we just see this that one or two moments where you see this more haunted uh tragic uh, character there is a lot of humor um i particularly like the they uh like graham is mistaken as the chief witch hunter 
because yes. it's a man, obviously. Yes. Yep. And uh, and when they're challenging him about why he's letting these women sort of like come up with all the suggestions, he is I love his line, it's sort of like it's a very flat team structure, which I thought <laughs> was uh, a, a nice bit of humour that mm. but it, because it's the witches, there is, you feel there's certain things you've got to have in it. You've got to have a ducking stool in it somewhere because mm-hmm. that's what people think about when they think about witch hunting. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, so some of it's kind of uh, primary school lessons, isn't it? You know what what mm-hmm. what you would have been taught in primary school mm. about witches and how they were treated. They have to stick that in there uh, mm. because that's what most people will remember about that situation, things they've learned in childhood mm. and they've stuck with them. So the, it, it's like, well, a, a number of doctors who's like, this isn't folklore, but um, the visitation, the, the Great Fire of London, the plague. Mm-hmm. And so uh, it's clear that Eric Sayward went off and got a kiddie's book on that part of history mm. and then wove a Doctor Who story around it. And that they do that with these kind of witchcraft type theme stories. I was just mm. thinking, just. I don't know if this is off topic or not, but it's kind of a went off on a little slant of the the Shakespeare Code, the Gareth Roberts piece, mm. yeah. where uh, it's kind of magic and witches, but it's done instead of it it's the spells instead of them working the way they do normally, it's it's all to do with um, usage of words to to create situations and generate something, isn't it? Mm. So, so mm. rather than, I think, I think it, the idea there was, because uh, you do have witches in it and you have like voodoo dolls, but they're kind of pieces of technology. You've got that thing again of science versus religion and mythology being explained in a scientific way. Mm. And then the, the idea, I think the author's idea was that as we talk about mathematics being used uh, the relationship between energy and matter and mathematics, you can create things. Thinking like in Logopolis now, where you can literally create something using mathematics. I think he applied the principle to the use of words. And, mm. that, and that was an explanation of how spells work. Mm. That, that it's not just people coming up with particular rhymes um, and then something happens. There's some science behind it. Um, very loosely explained again, but an interesting way of putting it mm. across. Mm. Yeah. The spells are actually driven by the words themselves. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. It's a nice bit of dream logic thinking. It's satisfying yeah. within the storyline, you know. Yeah. It, you, you don't want to look too closely into it, but uh, yeah. for the purposes of the story, it it works. Mm. Uh, I mean, there's that whole thing about names having power. Yeah. Which, yeah. Uh, a, a running theme. Actually, in the tenth Doctor stories, this idea that if you know the name of an alien, it sort of gives you some power over it. When mm. the Doctor names something, it seems to give him power. There's perhaps most explicitly said when uh, in a in a twelfth Doctor story, the flat flatliners, mm. well, not flatliners. That was a, that was a film with Keeper Sutherland. In, uh, in <laughs> yes. In in flatline when he says yeah. uh, I net he he says he so you have chosen to be monsters and I name you ah, you know I was building up there and I can't remember yeah. now what he named whatever it was they named it that yes yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, 
Sorry, that one went off in. <laughs> um, a, a couple of other things that come to mind. I'm conscious of the time, but I think there's a couple of other areas that come to mind. One, one is um, other literary legends that have come up. So um, certainly the Arthurian legend is explored in mm. Battlefield, which 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 is one that we haven't. And also, what came to mind while we were talking about. Um, more recent stories just now is, of course, in, in the Peter Capaldi era, we do have Robin Hood popping up as well, don't we? Yeah, mm. yeah in fact, that takes us back to the myth makers we were talking about at the beginning, mm. because it's another deconstruction type story, and that uh, Robin Hood turns out uh, to be not quite what the legends are. Although it's a, then it, but then it kind of goes into why we need stories, and indeed why we, why Robin Hood as a story has lasted so so long, through his many changes over the over the centuries. Mm. It's an invest, it becomes investigation of what you know the power of the story of a man who stands up for the uh, the downtrodden and this this hero, so. Uh, but uh, and the Doctor's annoyance that this particular version seems to be largely based on the Errol Flynn movie and everyone's <laughs> being very jolly and macho and thigh slapping. Yes, which, which of course is what all heroes were like. Obviously. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. How how is uh, how is King Arthur represented in Battlefield? Mm. So you have the Knights of the Round Table and all of that, don't you? Uh, and it's, Merlin mm. and. Mm-hmm. And it's the the once and future king, and that uh, Arthur himself doesn't appear. Yeah. Uh, he he's dead, and uh, in fact, there's a lovely line near the st- near the end where the Doctor picks up a note that turns out to be written by himself from the future, where yeah. it says, "King Arthur killed in the last battle. All the rest propaganda." Which, uh, <laughs> And there are again. It's uh, it's enjoying playing with the tropes of the Arthur with knights, with bold knights, and evil knights, and, and the uh, sword and chival- and the sword. Although that's a good example because we get this moment of the sword rising out of the lake, yeah. carried by Ace in this time, and Ace being, and then she kind of just sort of tosses it to Anselin and says, "Here, you can be king of England." Yeah. Uh, so again, it's all a bit diffused by it uh so again it's another example of a, a folk uh a folklore being inspired by aliens yes yeah i just uh, i just thought sorry matt go on no no i was going to say which, which is natural for for what is inherently a science fiction show that that mm-hmm. most of the representations are going to have a kind of alien spin to them aren't they let's be honest yeah yes unfortunately we can't we can occasionally get a bit of ambiguity uh at the end, when the Doctor encounters a creature that calls itself the devil in mm. the Satan yeah. yeah. and at the end, they say, when somebody says, you know, did we meet the devil? And the Doctor goes, well, I don't know, really. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know everything. So <laughs> <laughs> well, you just thought of something else as well. I was just thinking about, because we've been saying a lot about... Um, it, it's it has a spiritual or religious feeling, and then it gets debunked later mm. on. I just what's that story uh, that Peter Capaldi did, where it's they're underwater in a ship underwater. Mm-hmm. Is it called the Flood or something like that? Um, yeah, on, and under under the lake, something like yeah. And they mm. uh, people are killed, and there there are ghosts, and then the 
the twist in the story is that they really are ghosts. They're, they're mm. the souls of dead people. I think that's the mm. only time in the series history that that has happened, where the supernatural doesn't get debunked. Mm. Uh, mm. And the, doc, the doctor says, no, they're the real deal. They are souls of dead people. Yes. They're ghosts. That, that, and that is very unusual. I mean, it's something I've been exploring because I'm writing this book about folklore and Scooby-Doo at the moment. <laughs> and obviously in most of Scooby-Doo, the supernatural is debunked. But in certain mm-hmm. iterations of the show, it's not. Yeah. You know, thir- 13 Ghosts of Scooby-Doo is a classic example where, where they are demons mm. that are being contained in a chest. And, mm. and they're not the fairground owner with a mask on or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I think that, that recent, the Mystery Inc. Yes, yes. Yeah, well. Mystery, Mystery Incorporated has 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 that in, in um, because it, it uses, um, again, it uses um, conspiracy and UFO law from, from more modern times. And, and mm-hmm. yeah, there are complications. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Ghosts is interesting, actually. They do come up a couple of other occasions don't they um arguably the unquiet dead is kind of about ghosts in a way it's certainly about you know mm. dead bodies being reanimated isn't it mm. zombies and uh, again the, it's another one the ghosts turn out to be aliens they are gaseous mm. they are yeah. gaseous aliens as it turns out in that one yeah and then there's the Sideman story, isn't there, where, where everybody thinks that there are ghosts and Derek Cora proclaims that he's going to be out <laughs> of business because everybody can see spirits for themselves, but then they turn out to not be. That's it, they turn out to be. And uh, although, interestingly, early on, there's this nice bit where, because Rose's mother has been convinced it's been her grandfather yeah. uh, coming to, uh, and, and then the doctor says, no, you know, this is just like, is you know, and she's he poo-poo's it and she sort of like says, Why do you have to spoil it? You know, she's but, uh, which is not often actually said to him like that. So mm. it was a nice touch that. Yeah, mm. yeah. Uh we should wrap up, I think, mm-hmm. at this point. We've covered a lot of ground, and I suspect that everybody will have a nice long list of episodes that if they haven't watched them, they should go and watch for folkloric interest. So I'm going to I'm going to close off by asking you both to just from everything that we've covered, really, to, to pick one story that is of folkloric interest, mythological, legendary interest that is a particular favourite of yours and, and just explain what it is about it that, that works well. I don't mind who goes first. I'll, I'll go with The Curse of Fenric, I think. Okay. Um, much as I've already said, it's the, the whole idea of it being a, a Viking curse, but then some modern technology is used to decipher it, mm-hmm. and then they unwittingly unleash this evil that's been kept at bay for thousands of years. Um, and that the, the evil force has been manipulating mankind up until that point. Uh, but also, this is one of the rare occasions in Doctor Who history where the Doctor already knows. He knows the whole thing before it unfolds, and, and he's got there exactly the right time and um, is waiting for the right moment to make, to make his move. And, of course, then there's the analogy of the chess game, that he and this evil force 
literally in the in in the episode, but also metaphorically, have been playing chess with one another across the the centuries and millennia. Gareth, what about you? Uh, we've already talked to, uh, quite a bit about it, but we definitely have to be the demons. I think that, from a folkloric point of view, is the richest text by far. We've talked. I mean, this is this recurring theme of science versus uh, magic. It's recurring. We didn't even get onto it. It's got a maypole in it. It's yes. Morris dancers as well. Yeah. That we didn't yeah. get into. Um, it's also extremely well written and it's got some very funny stuff we didn't even uh, actually it's got a living gargoyle in it as well oh, yes. uh, yeah. it borrows heavily from sort of like dennis wheatley and that whole kind of uh the devil in an acceptable saturday tea time way the whole sort of devil mm. worshipping uh elements uh of it and it's, it's it's a very rich text and uh and even by the end of it even the doctor has to admit you know he doesn't know all the answers it ends with the doctor saying you were right joe there's magic in the world after all mm. yeah yeah and what a great close that is and i think i would go with that one for the same reasons as well yes it, it's got the it's it's got the maypole and the morris dancing and the very <laughs> traditional kind of english custom about it 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 has what my friend howard david ingham would refer to as the pagan village conspiracy um <laughs> and and yes the the whole kind of magical aspect of it i think um would, would probably set that one out for me that's one that i would recommend that people go and watch thank you both so much for taking the time to to run through this it's been really interesting to revisit some of these old stories actually and from the far corners of my brain <laughs> if people if people want to go and seek out more of your own work where should they go and look for it will where can people find what you do well i've got my own website willhadcroft.com and i've got obviously my my latest work is uh, doctor who the resurrection plant which is a, an audio story prose read by fraser hines with a few sound effects and bits of incidental music by david uh, Rucroft. Yeah, so that's that's got a little bit of folklore stuff going on. There's a gestalt creature in that, a composite mind. I will say no more than that, so mm-hmm. that I don't spoil it for people. But it's, it's the resurrection one. plant, and it's on Amazon and all the usual places. Excellent. And Gareth, where would people go and find your work? Well, the best place to start would be GarethPreston.blog, which is my blog, and that has links to all the things I'm involved in and some ghosts and some horror do creep in there. And meanwhile, Very British Futures, the podcast is available on most major podcast stations. And it's excellent listening too. It is indeed. Uh, And both Gareth and Will can be easily found on Twitter as well. That being a place where you can converse with them both as well as me. Uh, Gareth, Will, thank you so much for taking the time to come on. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. It's been great. Gareth Will and I had a lot of fun chatting through the episodes of Doctor Who, and I'm grateful to them both for the opportunity. You can follow both of them on Twitter at GazHack and Will Hadcroft, respectively, and I'll put links in the show notes and on the episode page on the website. The Folklore Podcast is the official podcast of the Folklore Library and Archive, 
which you can find online at www.folklorelibrary.com. Our aim is to preserve and make available for the future folklore resources in all formats, audio, visual, print and physical artefacts. To help us to achieve our goal, please consider supporting our work by either joining the Folklore Podcast Patreon family at patreon.com slash thefolklorepodcast where you can access extra materials or visit the library and archive website. You can learn more about our work, browse our materials and if what you find there is useful and worthwhile, you can make a donation on our fundraising page. Thank you for helping us to save folklore material for the future. See you next time.